feel the same. I really feel a, an amazing anointing tonight. Um, what I'm going to speak on tonight, I really believe, is prophetic. It's prophetic from the word, but it's also in my spirit. And it's about where we're going. The title, if you want a title, is really called The Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 16, 16 says, Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord God at the place he will choose. At the festival of unleavened bread, the festival, festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. And no one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. These three feasts were actually types and shadows. In other words, they were prophetic signs of three events that would happen in generations to come. Unleavened bread really is Passover. The festival of weeks is Pentecost. And the festival of tabernacles is obviously the great feast. Obviously Passover is to do with salvation, to do with the Lamb, to do with Jesus. To do with you individually getting saved and countering the Lamb. Pentecost, they celebrated the feast then, but it was prophesying the future. And we've all known about Pentecost, really. But there was something beyond Pentecost that was prophesied here. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles. The men were told to go three times to Jerusalem. And in your individual life, and in the history of the church, there's three prophetic installments that are coming to the earth. One is the Passover, which we've already had. Jesus died. He was the lamb. Then you had the day of Pentecost. And then for the church, you had Azusa Street, 1906, when it really hit the world in a big way. With Pentecostal revivals and God moved in mighty ways. We were talking about that earlier. But in between Pentecost and Tabernacles was a dry season. And I think it's interesting that we've had Pentecost for many years, since 1906. In fact, since, since the day of Pentecost. But you could say in the past 40 years, 50 years, wherever, it's been a dry season. We've had some outbreaks of the spirit, like Toronto, Pensacola. But I would say the past 10 years or wherever, it's been very dry. Some sparks here and there, some, some things here and there. But there's been a dry season. Romans 8, 23 says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. You see, Pentecost was known as a first fruits festival. First fruits festival. 
It was actually the smaller festival compared to Tabernacles. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let me just go back. Leviticus 23, 39 to 43 says, You shall keep it as a festival to the Lord seven days in the year. You shall keep it in the seventh month. As a statute forever throughout your generations, you shall live in booths for seven days. All that are citizens in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Tabernacles was a reminder to Israel of how God delivered them from Egypt and how he dwelt with them through the wilderness. God tabernacled amongst his people. For reasons that I'll explain as I go on, the Feast of Tabernacles can be called the Feast of Harvest. It can be called the Feast of, in, the feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Glory, the Feast of Rest, the Feast of Lights, and the Feast of Restoration. You see, what excites me is Pentecost that we've all experienced. And sometimes you hear people saying, and I say it as well, we need, we need another Pentecost. And in some ways we do. I don't mind saying that. But Pentecost was a first fruits festival. It's like we have been given a down payment. In other words, first fruits was a tenth. In other words, any revival that we've ever studied or read about, whether it's the Welsh Revival, Welsh Revival, Maria Woodworth Etta, any Pentecostal revival we've ever seen or experienced is not even a tenth of what is about to come. We've had Passover in our life and in the life of the church. We've had Pentecost. But what God wants to bring into the earth through a company of people, I believe, through a remnant, is tabernacles. What does tabernacles represent? It represents fullness. It's not just the down payment. Feast of harvest. Why is it the feast of harvest? Because it was the, it was the great feast it was called. It was the harvest time. Matthew 13, 36, 43, and I would say this is where we're at right now, says this. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. There's two seeds in the earth right now. And there always has been two seeds. One is the sons of the kingdom. The other is the sons of the evil one. Sons of the kingdom... And sons of the evil one. And as Bill said, if you like, there's a clash of kingdoms. And right now the harvest is almost ready. And that's why we're seeing all the darkness. 
and all the agendas and all the one world government stuff and all the evil. What is it? It's a harvest of the sons that have been planted by Satan himself. But this harvest isn't just one-sided. It's not just the evil ones who've been planted. That's That's half the story. There's also the sons of the kingdom. The mature sons who are going to walk in tabernacles. The harvest is the end of the age. It's also the feast of ingathering. I'm going somewhere with this. You will begin to get it. This is a prophetic declaration of what's coming, where we're at now, and what we're going to walk in. Joel 2, verse 23 to 24. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. It's a time of harvest, it's a time of ingathering, but it's the great feast. This is not Pentecost. This is the great feast of tabernacles where we are going to go beyond Pentecost, where Christ is going to be seen on the earth through us, where God's dream is going to be fulfilled, where he who planted us in the earth as the sons of the kingdom will see a company of people who walk in the full stature of Christ. This is not about us just walking the earth and escaping one day away from the evil. This is about a kingdom without end, whose government there shall be no end, whose increase of the government there shall be no end. Yes, there's darkness. Yes, there's evil. But there's coming an ingathering, a harvest. The Feast of Ingathering Tabernacle was the major annual harvest in the fall of the year. The spring harvest Pentecost is very small in comparison. In other words, Pentecost is small compared to tabernacles. In other words, anything we've read about to do with Azusa Street, anything we've read about to do with Pentecostal experience, whether it's George Whitfield or the Jeffrey Brothers, whether it was the Apostolic Church that I grew up in, which I love, absolutely love, I adore what the men did and women. Anything they did was small because it was Pentecost. It's necessary. You don't bypass it. We don't overlook it. We build upon it. But what is coming is beyond Pentecost. It doesn't replace Pentecost. It's also called the Feast of Glory. Why? Because Solomon's temple was dedicated at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. 2 Chronicles 5 verse 3 says, And all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month, which was Tabernacles. And verse 12 says, All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Judithan, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. 
The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpet cymbals and other instruments. The singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We're about to see the glory of the Lord fill the temple and I'm not talking about a building. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is his spirit. There's a glory coming. It's going to transform us. I remember having a dream about a year ago and it was really about the glory realm coming to our meetings. And I remember saying this kind of glory utterly, how is it I phrased it? It demantles you, it deconstructs you, and then rebuilds you again into the fullness and newness of Christ. It strips you away. I remember you said that, Alex, when you preached, you lost everything. It's a glory that takes away everything of the flesh, everything of the old, everything of Egypt, everything of the past, even what we think church is and rebuilds us and changes us. And at the time of tabernacles, which is the end of the age, which has never been seen before, there's never been a company of people who've walked in this. We've walked in revival, we've walked in outpourings, we've walked in visitations. But God is looking for more. And maybe, just maybe, the reason God's not answered our prayers for revival is because maybe God's wanted to do something greater than revival. Maybe it's tabernacles. Between Pentecost and tabernacles, there was a dry period. We've wondered what's going on. I've wondered what's going on. I, I was talking with Alex earlier. I talk with Bill all the time. I love the, the saints of old. I love what they walked in. I wonder why we know walking in it. But I also know from the Lord that we are going to walk in something even greater. It's the full stature of Christ. It's tabernacles. It's been transformed by the glory. It's when that time, that dry period is no longer here when suddenly the glory filled the temple. It was also known as the Feast of Rest because in the first day and the eighth day they were to have a Sabbath day. What does that mean for us? Hebrews 4 Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work. I believe, what does that mean? I believe there's a place in God beyond us striving 
beyond us working hard to try and get God to move, beyond even the gifts of the Spirit. Because I tell you, you don't need the gift of healing if Christ is emanating from you. Hugh Black used to talk about this when he was talking about the Jeffrey brothers. It wasn't even the gift sometimes they walked in. It was the emanation of Christ. It was the fullness. Some of them, I believe, walked in the power of the age to come. The Celtic saints did. Like, how could someone shadow heal someone? That's not really a gift, is it? That's the emanation of Christ. It's God seeking a body to fill and flood and flow of beyond just gifts. What is this place of rest that we're going to walk in? Rest is union with Christ himself. It's complete union. It's being in one with him. Now there's one thing reading it and and realising the scripture talks about our union with Christ, but it's another thing walking in it. But when we enter this place of rest, we actually stop doing our own works. And you know, that's quite hard for the church because we like to do a lot of works. We like to do our own programs. We like our ideas. We like to do what we think is a good idea, a good evangelistic plan. But what about coming to a place of rest where you are so in the fullness of Christ, so walking in union, that you could just look at someone and they come under conviction? That's just what the revivalists have all had, some of them, like Charles Finney. Remember he went in the factory and the, the woman at the factory window, the reception was laughing at him. And he just looked. He didn't even say a word. And she commanded such conviction. And before an hour or two, I think the whole factory was shut down. That's not our works. That's walking in union with God. Rest is union with Christ himself. It's the place where we boldly approach the throne beyond the veil to enter that place of rest and union with God. Madame Guyon says this. See, some people walked in this, I believe, way before their time. Because there's a place in God where you can walk in the power of the age to come. In other words, the future. And she said this. Oh, poor creatures who pass all your time in feeding upon the gifts of God and think therein to be the most favoured and happy. How I pity you if you stop here short of the true rest and cease to go forward to God himself. You see, God's given us gifts. But there's something beyond the gifts. It's walking in that realm of God, of the rest of God, of union with God, of the fullness of God, of the full stature of Christ. Tabernacles was also known as the Feast of Lights. And it's because of this. The two major ceremonies of the Feast of the Tabernacles were the water procession and the illumination of the temple. They would light up the temple as part of the feast. What does that represent? It represents the Shekinah glory. (laughs) We are the light of the world. Isaiah 60, arise, shine. 
for your light has come. Sometimes we read that and think it's just lovely words, it's just nice poetic words. But what would happen if the Shekinah glory in us began to shine? What would happen if the fullness of that glory had no hindrances in a company of people? No barriers, no restrictions, no sin to hinder it. What would happen if there's a small group, two or three even, who allowed the fullness of the Shekinah glory in us? Because remember, the kingdom of God is in us, Christ is in us. The Holy of Holies is in us. Jesus is the light and we are the light, illuminated with fullness. There's coming a day that's beyond anything we've ever seen. <laughs> the Feast of Tabernacles is also known as the Feast of Restoration. Solomon's temple was restored at the Feast of Tabernacles. And I just want to read this from Ezra. Ezra 3.4 It says, then, then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the feast, sorry, the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. So it was the feast of tabernacles. Now Ezra 3.12 says this, But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice. Why did they weep? The house was been built again. Why were they weeping? Because of this. The first temple had been destroyed 50 years earlier. The old men who had been about 60 years or older knew that this second temple temple did not begin to match the splendor of Solomon's temple, nor did the presence of God reside within it. The nation was small and weak, the temple smaller and less beautiful by far. There were no riches as in David and Solomon's days. The ark was gone, but most disappointing was the absence of God's Shekinah glory. And that's why they were weeping. Do you know, God's building something now. But there's those amongst us, and I speak about it with Alex and Charlotte and Bill. I feel like I'm weeping. Because I remember the glory before, like Solomon's temple, the church, the way it was. And I do feel like there's a weeping in my heart. I felt it for over a year or so, I grieving. Because what we've got now doesn't look like they had then in some ways. The glory they had, the anointing they had... What they had, the Shekinah glory, the, the moves of the Spirit, what George Whitfield had and the early apostolic Pentecostal pioneers, what they walked in, George Jeffries. And what do we have now that looks like nothing? You can go to many churches and I'm not being critical, it, it makes me sad. We don't have it. God is causing us, he wants us to see something being built. But I'm looking back in sadness and tears. But there was also joy. Why? Because there was something new being built. There's a weeping. 
for what was. There's a weeping for what we don't have. There's a groaning in the spirit. I feel the groaning of the Holy Spirit because I've seen what my mum and dad walked in. I feel the groaning for what Charles Finney had and Spurgeon and all these people. It seems like we, in comparison, have got nothing. But it's the Feast of Restoration. Yeah, God uses that groaning. He's using that heartache, that longing. What you had, Alex, in the past, you tell me all the stories about walking with all these people. There's something that was there that they had that we don't. But yet God is restoring. Tabernacles is about restoration. <clears throat> and do you know, can I say something? I know it's dark days and the end times even. But you know, Jesus actually can't come back until he fulfills what he promised. Acts 3.21 says, Whom heaven must receive and retain until the, complete, until the time for the complete restoration of all that God spoke by the mouth of all his holy prophets for ages past. From the most ancient time in the memory of man. In this time, Jesus is retained in the heavens. Why? Because there's many prophecies that have not been fulfilled. We're in the days of the restoration of the temple. But I'm not talking about a temple in Israel, I'm talking about us. A temple that's going to walk in fullness. A temple that's going to see the restoration of the Shekinah glory in us and through us. It's the feast of restoration. It's the restoration of government. That's what we're talking about all the time. It's the restoration of the ecclesia where Jesus is building what he said he would build. We're not against the church as Jesus said he would build it. But I am a, I'm not for what it's became because my heart grieves because we did have something maybe 100 years ago, 50 years ago. But we don't have it now. But Jesus said he will restore. He will build. It's the restoration of apostolic government. It's the restoration of Adam's mandate which is ruling in ki as kings on the earth, but also the heavens. The manifest sons. It's the restoration of priests like Joshua, kings and priests. I love this scripture in Zechariah 3, 6, 7. And it says, the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and if you perform my service, then you will govern my house and also have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access amongst those who are standing here. That was free access into the heavenly realms. That was an Old Testament promise. There was a few years ago when I was praying about something, it was actually to do with the the independence vote. And I'm convinced what on my heart, and I know Bill and others believe the same, convinced that 
the Lord wants Scotland to be part of the United Kingdom. And I was praying, and I was praying in the heavenly courts by faith. And then obviously we stayed part of the United Kingdom, but it was after that I, I went to the toilet <laughs> and the Lord spoke clearly to me. And he says, you now have free access amongst these who stand here. Do you know, we have got access to the heavenlies. The heavenly government that's coming is not about being on earth. It's about accessing the heavenlies, the heavenlies and governing from heaven. It's about knowing the mind of Christ, knowing the mind and heart of God. It's about dying to what we think. It's about administrating God's will from heaven to earth. It's about restoration of walking with God like Enoch. True friends of God who knew how to walk in communion with God. And I'm not talking about a nice wee prayer life in the morning where we have a wee quiet time. I'm talking about men and women who know God. Like Evan Roberts went to heaven every single night for three months, I think it was. He met God face to face. Like, we can meet God face to face. The heavenlies are opened. The veil is torn. That realm is here. Or that we are there in that realm. Maybe because maybe God's not moving amongst us because we continually don't actually understand that it's not really God wanting to move here, although he does. It's actually us coming up there. Beyond the sacred veil. It's really us coming into his realm of Mount Zion, the governmental arena of heaven. It's the restoration of walking in power like Elijah. It's the restoration of habitation. Ephesians 2.22 And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There's a corporate body, a corporate house that God is building. And I'm not talking about a building. You are the building. You are the living stones. And he is building something on the earth so that he himself can come and dwell. It's not visitation, it's habitation. This has never been seen before. You see, if we go back to what we've had, and I love what we had, it was visitation. But what would happen if we allow him to build us as living stones into a building where he himself comes and dwells? Can you imagine the glory, the power, the authority, the realm of God? Can you imagine the thousands and millions who would come because God's here amongst us, because we are the dwelling place, we are the habitation? Can you imagine you don't need to try and evangelize, you don't need to try and win people to Jesus, because the glory's here, the power's here, the authority's here. The realm of God is here that no generation has ever seen. Because we've never seen God's dream fulfilled of a building where he himself comes and dwells. Tabernacles beyond Pentecost, beyond revival, beyond visitation, fullness of Christ. <coughs> it's the restoration of the spirit of truth bringing conviction of sin. You know, we don't have that amongst us anymore. We, we have evangelism 
without the spirit of conviction, the spirit of truth. Like, I remember, I think I've told this story before, a year ago or so, there was a, there was a news article about uh, a court case in Ireland where, or was it a court case? They had just brought into legislation that women could get abortion up to birth, I think. And in the newspaper article, there was all these mostly young people celebrating, really delighted, really happy. Do you know, it, it, God showed me from that, we could go in there with our evangelism tactics and give people hugs, have a hug tunnel, <laughs> and love people, and there's nothing wrong with loving people, but you'll never change their mind that what they're doing is wrong. Never. You could try and argue with them the best way you can. You can be great at apologetics. But if the spirit of truth comes, the spirit of conviction comes, it's a game changer. Why is it people cried out to God for mercy when God came? Because the spirit of truth came in, in revivals. Because sometimes people were so far from God that when the spirit of truth came, it horrified them at how far they were from God. And it's the only way we can change the leftist ideologies, those who believe in the leftist nonsense. We can't change their mind by good arguments. They just think you're a right-wing nutcase. But when the spirit of truth comes, the spirit of conviction again, the fear of the Lord comes again. We need the restoration of the fear of God, the spirit of truth amongst us. Restoration of justice on the earth. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of their ungodly acts they have committed in, the, in their ungodliness and all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Paul Keith Davis is a prophet in America who I love. He visited Mariah Chapel in Wales. That's where the Welsh revival started. And he, he went into a vision and he saw a cloud coming in from the back. And he asked the Lord, what is that? And the Lord actually said to him, that's the spirit of conviction, something your generation knows nothing about. We need the restoration and we're going to have the restoration of conviction and the fear of God. I just want to read a story by John G. Lake. Because I believe some of these people like somehow partook of the power of the age to come. At the age of 16, John G. Lake came to know the saving power of Christ. His salvation experience was a very real one as displayed in his changed life. Many around him observed this transformation and said, you are baptized in the Holy Ghost. While friends around, around him saying he had been filled with the Holy Spirit, 
Lake experienced a hunger for more of God that was almost unbearable. He began to pursue the Lord and came to know the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of a layman named Melvin Pratt. The point of this story is that every time he received something, people told him, that's like, you've got it all, you've arrived. And he kept thinking, I've not arrived. This precious brother introduced Lake to the washing of the water by the word, producing in him a much richer and anointed life. Those around him acknowledged that surely he had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yet brother Lake hungered for more. Several years later, Lake was introduced to the healing power of God through Alexander Dowie. After experiencing firsthand this great power, he moved to Zion and associated himself with Dewey. He received from the Holy Spirit a tremendous impartation of the healing anointing of God. Many miracles and manifestations of the Spirit followed him. Those around him again tried to convince him he had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. By the turn of the century, Lake had realized a powerful salvation experience, an even more powerful sanctification encounter, and an impartation of the ministry of healing. At each juncture, those around him tried to convince him he had received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Yet his heart burned for more of God than ever before. As a result, he began a season of fasting, prayer, and waiting upon the Lord for a nine-month duration. During this time, he desperately searched for that place in God that would satisfy the longing of his heart. At the end of the time of separation, Lake had an awesome experience with the Lord. In it, Lake found himself surrounded in a cloud of glory. Volumes of virtue and power surged through his innermost being with waves of glory. Late, Laker spoke of the experience, saying the glory of this experience remained. You see, that's the difference between revival, visitation, and tabernacles, which remains habitation. It remained in my soul. I found that my life began to manifest in the various range of the gifts of the Spirit. Healings were of a more powerful order. My nature became so sensitized that I could lay my hands on any man or woman and tell what organ was diseased and to what extent. He knew he had been immersed in the Holy Spirit and became a dwelling place for God. His heart and soul were now satisfied. The Holy Spirit was residing in him, speaking through him, and saturating every fiber of his being. It was during this season that science even testified to the healing and recreative power of the Holy Spirit. Lake would visit hospitals and begin to diagnose cases the doctors were unable to analyze. The physicians later testified his diagnosis was correct. And it was after this experience, when Lake experienced this cloud, he said his nature was changed. That he said he became a Christ man. You see, I'm not wanting just the visitation. I'm wanting to be so engulfed in the presence that I become a Christ man. And it was Lake who said after that he became a Christ man. It was only after that that they could put the bubonic plague in his hand and look at it under the microscope 
and watched the plague die. He became a Christ man. And you know, people kept telling him, that you've got the fullness of the Spirit, you've got it. I think we're at the same place. We were talking about this earlier. I think we have so dumbed down what the baptism of the Spirit really is. The baptism of the Spirit has been saturated. It's been immersed in God. It's the fullness of God. It's been completely entwined with Him. Overshadowed. Overpowered. By Him. Who the Jews feared to even mention His name. And all we do is pray for someone and if they say a little word in tongues we say you've got it all. No we've not. I want the fullness of God. And I'm saying tonight that we're going to walk in it for those who are willing. And you guys are. All of you are so hungry. So faithful. We've seen Passover in all of our lives. And for some, we've moved further into Pentecost. And maybe for some, Pentecost is what we need. And maybe we all need it because we've never really had it the way we think. But even if that's true, we need the fire of Pentecost, that sanctification, so that then we can move towards tabernacles. Individually, as a church, as a generation, as a nation. After this lockdown, if there is an after this lockdown, we cannot go back to church as we've had it. We mustn't. We must be so determined to walk in the full stature of Christ. We must be so desiring to be in that place of rest so that it's not self-effort. It's not, I'm not talking about self-effort. It's about entering into rest. But not just rest as in not doing anything. It's being in that place of union with God. There's a remnant that Bill has spoke about a lot, that John McPhee and those guys spoke about. And I'm convinced, we're convinced that God is, I'm not saying it's just us, but it includes us. Who he wants to go beyond where we've been. Beyond just the church as it has become. Beyond, or maybe not beyond, through Pentecost. Paul Keith Davis also says this, and I'll finish. That God has moved through many, but he's rested on few. The Lord is looking for those he can rest on. That's how John the Baptist recognized Jesus. He said, whoever, whoever, whoever the Spirit comes and rests upon, remains. I don't think the Holy Spirit has been able to remain on many people, but he's going to. As we move move from just visitation to habitation. So Father, I ask that you will take a hold of a small band of people And take us into that place, Lord, 
where we are amassed fully. Lord, even tonight, move amongst us. Take a hold of our hearts and mind and will, emotions, body, soul, spirit. Let us grasp what you're saying, not just intellectually, but in our heart and spirit. Maybe begin to grasp that you have a plan for a company of people to really walk in the fullness of Christ. Tabernacles that you're building a house where you yourself will come and dwell, where we will carry the light of God in reality, the Shekinah glory will shine from us, where we truly will arise and shine. It won't just be words, it it won't just be poetic language, it won't just be theology, but we will actually literally arise and shine, truly be the ones who walk in the Spirit, who rule from the heavens, who walk like Enoch, who walk in power and authority, yielded vessels, walking in union with God, not stopping just at the gifts, but going towards God himself. Not just for ourselves, not just so that we can enjoy God, but so that we can see nations transformed, so that we can see the United Kingdom come into its purpose, its scroll, its destiny, so that we can see Babylon fall, so that we can see this nation protected from all the agendas of evil, so that nothing can touch this land, so that nothing, nothing, can touch your body. Nothing can touch that man-child that's in this land that's raised up for this time. 